we are a part of that collection of two white men <laughs> doing podcasts. We're two queer white men. Does that differentiate us at all? Or does I'm, it? I'm, totally helps with the topic. We're talking, we're talking about, about musicals. Yeah, we're talking about musical theater. <laughs> I'm Peter. And I'm Nathan. And yes, musical theater has gospel. And dancing boys. And fancy hats. So join us for the gospel of musical theater wherever you get your podcasts. ES Audio. Hello, you're listening to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. I'm Nick Curtis, the Standard's Chief Theatre Critic. I'm Nancy Durrant, the Culture Editor. And I'm Nick Clark, the Deputy Culture Editor. This week we're coming to you from the Duke of York's Theatre on St Martin's Lane. I do love the West End on a sunny day. It's so sort of grimy and bright. Before we go in, this is what's coming up on today's show. We'll be reviewing The Secret Life of Bees at the Almeida. It's a new musical based on the novel by Sue Monk Kidd and directed by Whitney White. Mysterious and wonderful, the secret life of bees, no matter where they fly. The book for that show is by Lynn Nottage, with music and lyrics from Duncan Shake and Susan Birkenhead. Plus, we'll be discussing Private Lives at the Donmar Warehouse, starring Rachel Sterling and Stephen Mangan, as well as Downton Abbey's Laura Carmichael. And Sir Lenny Henry and director Lynette Linton join us to talk about their forthcoming show at the Bush Theatre, August in England. This was genuinely inspired by reading the story of the lady who worked at the Commons who was suddenly told she didn't have leave to remain, or Michael Braithwaite, who was an incredibly valued teacher of special needs kids who was just told he had to get out because he, he, he was an illegal immigrant. Previews for that begin on April 28th. Should we get this show on the road? Hello and welcome to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. Today we're coming to you from the lounge of the Duke of York's Theatre on St Martin's Lane, which is currently home to Shirley Valentine, starring Sheridan Smith. That's easy for you to say. Uh, we reviewed that show on a previous episode, so make sure to go and dig that out. Uh, the sales for Shirley Valentine have been extremely good. Yeah, they? record profits, apparently, they said this week. Um, and even though actually the tickets are quite... Uh, affordable, kind of, com- you know, comparatively, comparatively speaking. speaking. I think they were sort of started on top price of 75 when they first went on sale. Mm. I don't know if that's still the case. David Pugh, the producer, said that uh, when he started out, they were £75, but down to £7.50, yeah. which is really affordable. That and I know all. these things are all relative. Um, somebody within theatre did once say to me that David Pugh is one of the few theatre producers who comes from a relatively working-class background and mm. has, therefore, a commitment to keeping ticket prices low. And even though I had reservations about the play Shirley Valentine, I think uh, Sheridan Smith's performance is extraordinary and I think its success is extremely well deserved. Shows the power of the Sheridan Smith across it does. the West End. It does, yes. Uh, just to say, you may hear some acting in the background. Uh, we're recording in the Ambassador's Lounge today because there is a rehearsal going on in the auditorium. And this just wasn't any old lounge. This was once the Royal Retiring Room. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was used as a private space for visiting royalty to relax in, so we're feeling very at home here today. Oh. Yeah, this, this, uh, <laughs> this theatre was, um, was originally called the Trafalgar Theatre and was renamed the Duke of York to honour King George V, so not our current Duke of York. Uh, it was built by uh, architect Walter Emden, who's one of the uh, preeminent West End theatre architects, for uh, Frank Wyatt and his wife Violent Melnot, who we are told by the front of house staff here sometimes still haunts this very bar. So if you hear some woos as well as acting <laughs> from the stage, that'll be Violet Melnot. Um, they owned the theatre up until 1935. Capital Radio owned this theatre at one point for a time. Uh, yeah. It's now part of Ambassador's Theatre Group. Interesting. There we go. Nick, you went to the Critics Circle Awards this week, didn't you? Yeah, it was a nice, um, really nice award ceremony. I'd never been to it before. 
and there were some really special winners and some lovely speeches. One that stands out is Patsy Ferran, who obviously is fast becoming the national treasure of theatre land. Mm. But what was very funny is we're, while she was uh, giving her acceptance speech, and I should say Paul Mescal and uh, and Jennifer San were both there as a surprise to give it to her. Because yeah, this is for Streetcar. This is, I should say, Best Actress for Streetcar for playing Blanche Dubois. And in the middle of her speech, a phone went off. So it shows that not just normal punters, but the critics can't turn their ruddy mobile phones off either. But what was very funny is that she said that quite recently, while she was just getting to the most famous line in Tennessee Williams about uh, I've always relied on the kindness of strangers, she had just paused and... Secret of comedy is timing. Yeah, isn't it? Well, yeah. well, uh, I missed I missed the awards this year, which is a shame. I think they have tried to rejuvenate them a bit and mm. make them more of an event um, this year and last year. The Critics Circle is the oldest professional association of its kind. I'm told. Ooh, yeah. I don't exactly know what of its kind means. Maybe maybe it beats the, the old Magic Circle. circle. <laughs> yeah. I've always thought that the Magic Circle and the Critics Circle should have a bit of a gang war and establish <laughs> to establish God. dominance over London, but. Uh, um, but yeah, nobody else. He was it was, it was held at, at Soho Place, and oh, yeah. it was on the stage of Medea, so mm. it felt suitably theatrical. Oh, it was in the round, um, and yeah, it was it was great. It was a real celebration of theatre, and there were very many other worthy winners. Giles Torreira gave an excellent speech, and mm-hmm. he won for two performances in Blues for an Alabama Sky and Othello. Both excellent. Both excellent. Oh, and um, you can hear um, you interview... No, Nick. Other I interviewed Nick, him, you yeah. interviewed in, our him. in our last podcast. In our last podcast, yeah. Have a for, listen. For um, meaning of song, yes. And, of course, Tyrell Williams, who won the most promising playwright uh, for, for Red Pitch, which... Um, I think everyone agreed was was a, a really wonderful piece of work. Yes, he won our Evening Standard Award for that last year and, and won again at the Critics Circle Award. So uh, we've just heard that, that that show is coming back to the bush mm. along with Elephant by Anushka Lucas. Um, both of them terrific shows. Both of them, I think, deserving mm. of a second run at the bush but also of a larger, longer life somewhere else, if possible. So yeah, yes. if well. any producers are listening <laughs> out there... Get on it. Get yeah, on it. Absolutely. The, the last thing is they reinstated the Peterborough Empty Space Award oh, yes. and uh, I think they could have found no better first recipient for the revived award within the critics circle what does that mean the Empty Space so it was award? for a venue and I don't right. think the critics there hadn't been an award for a venue before is what I understood I, hope I think that's right. I think the Peter Brooker Empty Space Award was a separate thing that was, it was set completely up by, separate. Set and up it's by sort of joined the right, they've okay. subsumed it. And Blanche was there, I think, at the age of well, she's certainly late nineties, yeah. and wow. gave a formidable performance in 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 speaking about the award and about the winner. Uh, and the winner was New Diorama, and I think we've uh, again we should never pass up on an opportunity to to give them their flowers. And and they've just appeared in the New York Times. I yes, know. I saw that. Yes, so amazing. Good. Anyway, should we talk about the secret life of bees at the yes. Almeida? Yes, let's. So you two saw this, I didn't. Um, please tell me, this is based off a best-selling novel, I think, Nick. Yes, it's based on the best-selling novel by Sue Monk Kidd from, I believe, 2001. 2002, it was made into, I think. Ah, I think it was written in 2001 and won an uh, award in 2002. Fair enough. We've got anyway, to get this sort of thing right. Webs. <laughs> our, our listeners expect. <laughs> Joke's not fact. Yeah. In this, uh, it was made into a film in 2008, um, and now it is a stage musical. A really rather unusual one, I would say. The music is by Duncan Shake, who turned Spring Awakening into a musical and American Psycho into a musical so he has form yeah he was sitting next to me uh, in the oh, first half of last in the first half of the opening night and he, he was quite physically invested right <laughs> he was very sort of 
conducting in his seat, was he? Yes, yeah. And uh, the the book is by Lynn Nottage, who uh, is a terrific. Is is so far the first and only woman to win two Pulitzer prizes. She's mm. won every award going, including our award for best play for Sweat at the Dormar Fabulous Warehouse. play, right? some years back. Yes, she's a tremendous writer. Again, I mean, not the sort of person you necessarily immediately think of to to work mm. on a musical. The the lyrics are by a veteran uh, New York lyricist, Susan Birkenhead, and it's directed by Whitney White, whose name I know but whose work I'm not familiar with. Mm. Who I I think it's quite sort of avant-garde and cutting edge. Mm. So it's a it's a really strange confluence and it's a really strange product, wouldn't you say, it, Nancy? It is. I read a review uh, of the US run, because it was in the States uh, before, that described it as cross-pollinating the secret garden with the colour purple, which is actually a quite a good yeah, description, I, I, I think. That, <laughs> I know, that's exactly what I thought when I read it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's quite a good description because it's, it's about this sort of sisterhood of women uh, black women in the period when Lyndon B. Johnson has just signed in uh, voting rights for people of colour in the US. It's still right after 1964. Yeah, yeah yes. exactly. And two young women, one black and one white, uh, come as sort of, I don't know, fugitives in a way to yeah. come and stay with them. Uh, and it's, you know, about redemption and, and about sort of keeping the outside world and the bad things out, but them seeping in and, and all of that kind of stuff. Those two worlds, they are very much a collision and they yeah. don't really, I don't know, it's a very strange tonal mix. It's it? really it's really sort of polarised, isn't it, between the sort of brutal reality of racism in the 1960s Deep South, it's set in South Carolina. Mm. So, you know, it, it is about the Mississippi murders of that time, the, mm. the, the, you know, the church burnings. But on top of it is this rather sort of um, fairy tale account of of female sisterhood and togetherness yeah. and lack of difference and, and it's things like that. It's quite syrupy in places. It is quite is syrupy, not yeah. Lynn Nottage's vibe at all. No. And it is very moving as well in parts, I think. And the moments of sort of genuine horror of which there are a couple are dealt with quite deftly I think there's some violence which is done in slow motion which is I think that's actually very effective because it makes it watchable yeah but it's still really horrible yes. like there was quite there was quite a small child uh, the daughter of one of the creatives in again in the audience when I saw it and um there was a bit, and he sort of leaned forward to her and said, you know, now remember, the, the, there are the bits where you put your hands over your eyes. Because right. yes, it was a yes. bit, I wouldn't recommend it for a four-year-old. But, but it's good that it works, because the, that slow motion stuff can also look always, or yeah, can often look very student production. Yeah, and there, right. there is a certain sort of stylization and staginess here, which does feel a bit student production to the acting. There's a lot of people pressing their hands to their breasts and rolling their eyes to the to the skies yeah. and uh, and putting on very, very solemn faces when they're delivering very, very solemn lines. I just found the whole thing quite enthralling, but also quite baffling in, in lots of I ways. know, it's funny, isn't it? I tell you what, though, the music, yeah. like, let's, you know, it's a musical, so let's talk about that. Yeah. Duncan Shakes music, and I think particularly the, mu- the, the vocal arrangements, which I think are by Jason Hart, are really lush. Yes. They are very, very beautiful. And I think the, the singing is pretty knockout. I agree. The, the the best moments of the score, I think, are when it's at its bluesiest or almost gospel. Mm-hmm. Those songs are amazingly powerful and they do trust the performers voices yeah uh, there's a couple called Take a Hole of My Soul and Our Lady of Chains which are like big ensemble numbers and they are just 
absolutely gorgeous you know yeah. every, there was a real there was a lot of whooping in the audience after those I want to shout out to I think Rachel June as August who is the kind of matriarch of yeah. this group of women the queen bee if the, you like the, the queen bee if you will oh, <laughs> and, uh, Ava Brennan who plays her sister June and they have this argument number called Trouble in the House which I think is electrifying yes. that's really really good I agree the two leads are Eleanor Worthington Cox and Abiona Omonua um, who are both physically quite small people but just both have these enormous voices as well which they sort of haul out from the depths of their being and and sort of hurl into the audience it's very passionate very good uh you know really really deeply moving uh, which again is slightly strange because they're their characterizations are rather thin. Yeah, in fact, all the characterizations are quite thin. You get a real thin. feeling from this, don't you? I mean, we've we've talked in the last few weeks about um, literary adaptations, mainly with a little life, which you know is nearly three hours long, which you kind of need for an eight hundred page novel, but it feels like a good adaptation of a novel Nearly for four the stage. Nearly four hours long, run three hours long. Yep, I was, <laughs> so, so clearly kind of blocked that out, but yeah, nearly four hours long. Um, but, uh, but this one feels, it, this one is only just over two hours, and it feels like, it, it feels like there must be more. Like, it doesn't feel as rich, certainly in terms of the characterization, as you say, like everyone yeah. is, and August particularly, as the matriarch, feels very sort of, magical Very which yeah a bit yes. of a cliche yeah. and that doesn't i don't think that's i yeah i just wanted to know a bit more about them yeah the thing is it all there's a lot to criticize but it i did i did find it very moving mm. and it's not at all boring in any way. We did on a previous podcast talk about um, maybe there's something to be said for not entirely understanding shows, yeah. you know, for, yeah, underst- yeah. for appreciating them on a sort of visceral level. And I found myself thinking maybe I'm wrong to try and impose a sort of rigid narrative mm, structure mm, onto mm, this mm. and I should just enjoy the way it mashes stuff up yeah. and thrives on sort of clash and contrast. Also, it looks beautiful. The, the, it does look beautiful. The set it, is lovely. It does have this sort of honeyed, sorry, secret life of bees, um, <laughs> yeah. flow to the it's whole true, thing. It's true. It's got to be deliberate, surely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really, it's really lovely. Yeah, and there's a, there's a slight sort of sense of uh, the, the, it, the the set is a sort of outline of a, of a house that a child would draw or a barn. So you do mm. get this very simple set of sort of simple rural lives. I think lived, um, but also lives which are lived under exp- uh, under exposed conditions. I suppose, mm. and, you know, conditions of threat. So yeah. yeah, so interesting. We were talking about shows transferring earlier. I know uh, when we reviewed Tammy Faye at the Almeida. We all thought that was a sort of a, a sort of primer run with a view to a larger life. Mm. This show's already been in New York. I, 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 you know, I think somebody at the Almeida must have really believed in it and thought, I really, really want to bring this over yeah. and put it on for a relatively short run. It's got a relatively big cast. It's yeah. you know, going to be quite an expensive thing to mount. Yeah, you've got to just assume that they, they're hoping to, to get it into the West End. Maybe. Um, well, and fans you know, of the novel, I suppose. Well, yeah, I mean, it was a huge hit, yeah, the yeah. novel. Um, and I would be interested. I have read the book, but it must have been 20 years ago, and I remember nothing thing about it so I would I, I you know I would really like to hear from someone who has read it recently and then sees the show because I, I, I'd love to know sort of how they feel about how that how that was brought to life listeners yeah. do do write in right it's time for a quick ad break coming up Lenny Henry and Lynette Linton join us to chat about their new show August in England in the meantime why not give our pod a rating and hit subscribe Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 
100% online, you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. We are a part of that collection of two white men <laughs> doing podcasts. We're two queer white men. Does that differentiate us at all? Or does it? It totally helps with the topic. We're talking, we're talking about, about musicals. Yeah, we're talking about musical theater. <laughs> I'm Peter. And I'm Nathan. And yes, musical theater has gospel. And dancing boys. And fancy hats. So join us for the gospel of musical theater wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Giles Torreira, and you are listening to the Evening Standard Theater Podcast. Welcome back to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. I'm at the Bush Theatre with Artistic Director Lynette Linton and Sir Lenny Henry in a break from rehearsals of Lenny's debut play, August in England, which starts previews on April 28th. Lenny and Lynette, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's nice to be here. Lenny, could you briefly give us a quick rundown of the play? August in England was inspired by the Windrush scandal that we've all been going through pre-lockdown and through lockdown and post-lockdown. Like everybody, I was horrified by the things I was reading. And it made me want to do something. Because Lynette and I were talking about, well, what are we going to do at the bush then? You've got to come. And Lynette is very persistent. When are you coming to the bush, man? Every time I saw her. So I, I had this thing that it should be about the Windrush, post-Windrush. Because my mum came over in 58. She didn't come over on the Windrush. Right. She was very annoyed when there were no camera crews there to meet her and ask her to sing a calypso or something. <laughs> so I thought, yeah, those people have problems too. You know, my sister Kay came over on my dad's passport. So this could have happened to any of my older brothers and sisters. So it's really lived with me in my heart. And watching people talking about it on the telly and listening to them, it's really moved me because they came here first when streets were cold and uh, worked very, very hard. And what's happened is they're being treated in a way that is not commensurate to their effort, to their input to the country. Mm. So I feel that August is a bit like that. He's worked hard, he's paid his taxes, he's paid his dues. And uh, why is he being treated like this? We don't know. So the play is an attempt to show us a man being hit by a double-decker bus Mm. late in life. And it came, didn't it, from another project that you did for the BBC, Soon Gone? It was inspired by Soon Gone, yeah. My production company, Douglas Road Productions, made um, eight 15-minute monologues for BBC Two, I think. Mm. And it was all about the experience of, from people who'd arrived on the Windrush to present day, several generations of one family. Um, But really, this was genuinely inspired by reading the story of the lady who worked at the Commons who was suddenly told she didn't have leave to remain, or Michael Braithwaite, who was an incredibly valued teacher of special needs kids, who was just told he had to get out because he, he, he was an illegal immigrant. Interestingly, we had some contributors, didn't we, come in and talk to us about what's happened to them, and it was just devastating. Listening to our contributors talk about their personal experiences, it was incredibly moving, but it, it makes 
us it makes me very angry because yeah. you're literally listening to something and you're like what the whole time how is how did that happen how yeah. was it allowed to happen why wasn't it stopped sooner why wasn't it reported sooner why you know all of those questions mm. it really doesn't make any sense a lot of they and them going on when you talk to the contributors they talk about them and they and it's very big brothery very right. 1984 this sense of there's a faceless yeah. person out there sending these almost like AI-generated documents to people that are just about comprehensible. Mm. And you kind of think, I think this means they want me to leave tomorrow. You know, this is a very weird time we're living in. That's what we've been talking a lot about in terms of like the language of these letters and the language of how people were being spoken to. Mm. And you're like, what are you, what are you saying? So it doesn't yeah. make sense, but also I, I, you're using language that... Uh, huh? Like, you know, is this English? Why don't you just call me or why don't you just yeah. send me a letter written in English? Yeah, like really... some questions about you. It's fine, don't worry. You know, we just need your passport and da, da, da. it's going to be fine, don't worry. Rather than we, we, we regret to inform you yeah. that long residence in the United Kingdom alone does not confer British nationality. It feels as well that as if it's not really getting any better. I mean, there is so much kind of rhetoric around, isn't there, about. Uh, and, and in some cases from people whose parents or grandparents took a similar route from somewhere else to come here, it, that must be quite, that's quite bewildering, isn't it? To see a brown person saying, stop the boats. Yeah, it is confusing. It is weird. But remember, there's a whole thing about folklore, L-O-R-E, where people join something and they take on the law of the thing they've joined. Mm. So they have to parrot whatever the law is of that particular institution mm. to fit in. And I, I see that a lot in what's going on here. It's also very convenient. You can blame that person. It's very convenient for those people to go, oh, it was nice, it was them. Whereas actually they're, they're the ones writing the script. Lynette, it feels like that story as well, the Windrush story, and for other people who didn't come over on that ship but have been sent home or threatened with it, is sort of disappearing. So I suppose that speaks to the importance of making art about these things mm -hmm. so that the stories stay alive, doesn't it? Absolutely. I think um, when the scandal broke, I remember having a couple of conversations with people who had never even heard of the Windrush. Oh. And it was that moment where I just went, our history in this country isn't taught. We know this, we have these conversations. But for somebody to be like, what's the Windrush? I remember. Mm. I, and, and, and being ashamed of the fact they didn't know mm. was a moment where I just went, wow, like we really don't, educate how this country came to be <laughs> and, uh, and where we've ended up mm. so that was the first problem and then on top of that the scandal so yeah so it's really important that we're using theatre and art to make sure that we understand w how this country came to where it is today because sometimes I think that that conversation and the contribution of the Caribbean people <laughs> Um, specifically because that's what we're talking about with this play yeah. uh, gets really overlooked and obviously there's been loads of things recently since the scandal broke about oh let's talk about it but it took so long for that yeah. to be a conversation you it know? should just be in the it should just be in the in the history books it should be in the history books I was never taught about slavery or Windrush or anything in my school and it wasn't until I took an interest myself in my own history that I started to find out things you know literally being in Norman Beaton's house and seeing all these books particularly Peter Fryer's uh, staying power yeah. to suddenly realise that black people have been in Britain since Hadrian's Wall and Tudors and Edwardians we've, we've been in this country we've helped to build this country and then you know the Commonwealth and all of that being having a passport that says UK colonial passport mm. giving you access to any part of the empire you know to come here and be treated like that is appalling so 
not to have that story in your school books, to only be learning about Henry VIII and Francis Drake and not learning about how people contributed to slavery and, you know, the whole thing of we're only here because you were there. Yeah. You know, if you had a basic working knowledge of that at school, you'd be going, okay, good, I know that. But if you don't have it, then mm. there's an ignorance going on and ignorance is the enemy. I've learned a lot from going to the movies and going to the theatre. So if that's what we're here for, good. We're not just here to make you laugh. <laughs> and happy and jolly, we're here to go, yeah, this is going to be entertaining, but look at this as well. Yeah. This, we're telling you this as well. Mm -hmm. And this play, because I know people are going to go, oh, one-man show, Lenny Henry, hooray, jokes. There are jokes, but it's more about the whole thing. It's a, more of a holistic thing. You're learning about someone's life and what Lynette and Daniel have been doing is absolutely going, okay, that's great, but why don't we try it like this? Kind of try and make a, a story where it's a continuing narrative so they can... It's, because jokes are just like joke, 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 joke. It's not that. Mm. So if people are coming expecting that, hopefully they relax after the first 10 minutes and go, oh, it's not that, but this is still val valid. Mm -hmm. And it's just finding another way to deliver the story. Mm -hmm. And that's Daniel Bailey, the co who's co-directing with you, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, two years ago. When, well, how long have we been chatting? Maybe like three years? Pre-COVID. I don't even yeah, know where we are now. Pre-COVID. If you were telling me I was going to be directing Lenny Henry, I'd have been like, is it? Are you sure? <laughs> because I grew up watching Lenny. My family are all like, when am I coming in to meet him? All the time. <laughs> My mum's calling me, can I come in? Like you are, you know. But what I'm loving about this process with, with Dan as well is that we are all learning so much from each other. You're working incredibly hard, but I'm learning so much from watching you. Which is true. That's that nice. is really true. Thank you're, you. The way you're able to carry comedy in a space is extraordinary. And what I love is what you've kind of alluded to is that me and Dan are then able to kind of go, this is brilliant, all right, let's pause. And then how do, how do we tell that bit of the story? And um, your rehearsal room, I know, is one that has a lot of music in it. So what are you dancing to at the beginning of your rehearsals? I think, I think uh, let's not get it twisted. What happens at the beginning of the rehearsal day <laughs> is a kind of encouragement to release energy. Because usually you come into a rehearsal room and it's a bit depressing, you know. But with what Lynette and Daniel try to do is go, right, there's a cup of tea, there's a chat, and then, right, we're going to move. And then it's about movement. And suddenly there's this energy build-up, isn't there? Mm -hmm. What's lovely is, A, exchange of playlists and ideas, B, this sense of... And these guys can really, I just imagine Lynette as 14 year old looking in the mirror and going, doing Destiny's Child, doing all the movements, say my name, say my name, Shamalama baby, you know, and just, it's, it's incredibly choreographed. I'm, I'm in the corner doing dad dancing, these guys are doing moves, it's amazing. We should do that every morning Absolutely. in the evening standards. You I'd should. love to see the newsroom do you that. You know, even just the tube, travelling on the tube, you, you, you get smaller, yeah. you're, you're vexed because it's late, or whatever it is, something. Coming in and knowing you're going to be able to shake it all off is such a... That's great. It's such an important thing. And sometimes I've noticed you don't want to do it, but then when, when, when it's going, come on, we're all moving, we're suddenly all moving. Oh, I've got to dance. It's great. Yeah. yeah. Because if you, if you come in and you didn't want to do it, and then they put on your favourite record and you dance, it's... It's a release. Lenny and Nanette, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, thank you so much. much. Thank now you. We're going to put some records on. Get down, <laughs> get down, get down. What? Get down, get down. <laughs> that was Lenny Henry and Lynette Linton speaking to me at the Bush Theatre. Let's have a quick break, after which we'll be reviewing Private Lives at the Donmar Warehouse, starring Rachel Sterling and Stephen Mangan.
we are a part of that collection of two white men <laughs> doing podcasts. We're two queer white men. How does that differentiate us at all? Or does I, it? I it totally helps with the topic. We're talking, we're talking about, about musicals. And we're talking about musical theater. <laughs> I'm Peter. And I'm Nathan. And yes, musical theater has gospel. And dancing boys. And fancy hats. So join us for the Gospel of Musical Theater wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Marisha Wallace, and you're listening to the Evening Standard Theater Podcast. Welcome back. Our second review this week is Private Lives at the Donmar Warehouse. Yeah, this was a team trip of sorts. Nancy and I went to see it right after we recorded last week's show, which you can listen to after this episode if you haven't yet done so. Uh, This is the first production since the announcement that the current artistic director of the Donmar, Michael Longhurst, will be stepping down. He's leaving next February after five years in the role, and I got the feeling this was uh, designed to sort of set a mark on Mm. his time there, which I think has not been an unbridled success, I would say. No, well, neither is this. And uh, Nick, you (laughs) knew you went to see uh, Private Lives last night, didn't you? And I think we're all agreed this isn't an unbridled success either. (laughs) (laughs) We should probably tell people, on the unlikely event that people don't know Private Lives, it is about a couple of typical... They probably are the the quintessential Noel Coward couple. Mm. Brittle, wealthy, despite having no apparent means of support, International clipped pajama wearing, chain smoking, <laughs> witticism spewing. Shows. <laughs> when they first meet them, they are divorced, but they meet on adjoining balconies in the south of France during honeymoons to their respective second spouses. It's regularly revived, sort of about every t- every ten years. Mm. Uh, Although well, I imagine not recently. Well, expand on that, Mr. Clark. Well. So, as you say, you don't need to explain the backstory. I had never seen this, actually. This was a first for me, and I left totally flummoxed. Mm. I arrived thinking, oh, it'll be this lovely light throwing off of witticisms left, right, and centre about social mores of the 1930s. And what we got was this extraordinary, I suppose, sort of vicious sub Wildian uh, show about domestic violence. I was totally wrong-footed by it. Now, I know that the production has leaned into this. This is not how it's normally presented. And, you know, all, all power to that. But for a me... Lot of, a lot of other reviews are sort of branding it as dark coward in the same way that people are yeah. branding Oklahoma as sexy Oklahoma. It's yeah, a sort of yeah. invention. The problem is the play doesn't hold it. Mm. So... When you try and take these characters and make them social realist monsters who um, abuse each other and fight, the problem is if you read the text of these light sort of throwaway lines, there is no exploration of why they do this, who they are, and about what the impact of this is. And I really think, I mean, you know, we, we talk about audiences a lot. They didn't really know what to think about this because mm. a lot of these jokes about beating each other up mm. in the original were clearly meant to be funny. Yeah. Yes. And now a lot of people thought, you know, that you could hear a pin drop every now and again. Sometimes people did laugh because it was supposed to be funny, but you're like, oh, ick, this is not funny. So I left just thinking, what was that? Mm, what yeah. about you, Nancy? How well, did you find it? It's funny, isn't it? The message seems to be, you know, oh, aren't all people absolutely ghastly? Isn't yes. that funny? <laughs> it's really bleak. Yeah, they are really Actually, ghastly people. As soon as those scenes, particularly the scenes where they start fighting, it, you are, it's so uncomfortable. When he grips her neck. Oh, uh, God, that happens several times, mm. and it's really, really difficult to see. Mm. I was actually slightly surprised 
to find le- well I mean I don't know is there a trigger warning anywhere I don't know because it's genuinely quite horrible yeah it's true I've never seen it presented in that way before usually it's sort of a, it's just a lot more larky Elliot particularly who's played by Stephen Mangan um, they're both casually cruel to each other but that kind of casual cruelty feels very different in a man it's much more you know it, it well it hits differently in every sense yes. essentially when you have that physical power to back it up to me Mangan feels just a bit too dangerous for this to to, to really be the kind of thing that it used to be it's I think the way, the, the way it used to be got thing. away with quite often was that Elliot was played by quite often you know sort of wispy camp coward like figures yeah. you know and there's been a trend in recent years uh, you know Stephen Mangan is a big bloke yeah. he's uh, you know he's uh, physically imposing I was expecting it to be a lot funnier than it was, and I don't know. It's because of the tone of it makes it means you have to take out or lower certainly lower the larkiness and lower the yeah. It's really tonally uneven. I mean, that's yes. the thing that, that there are these you know stark horrible. The whole the whole thing feels slightly creepy and dark, but then you yeah. do still have these occasional witticisms zinging out to tumbleweed. Really, yeah. you know, there I'm, are funny lines that just die on stage there because yeah yeah, yeah, I'd rather like like Rachel Sterling yes because she manages to find a bit of nuance in a character that studiously avoids it you know but I I just but Elliot is just he's the kind of person you'd be like briefly amused by at dinner and then you'd avoid uh, for the rest of the holiday you know he's just exactly it's absolutely awful and you'd just be a bit like can we not hang out with them because I really don't like him this is the best I've seen Rachel Sterling on stage and I'm criticising these performances much more in sorrow than in anger because I am professionally and I've met both of them in interviews several times. I've reviewed, you know, their performances over the decades, and they're both actors who I value and personally like. Yeah, and, and I so think it's also it's a, a direction real, thing. I mean, it's clearly yeah, a decision. I, I think Stephen Mangan looks really uncomfortable. In this. I, I, I totally think he, agree. You know, that you can sort of see the uh, his eyes screaming. And that, me out of and that hampers the first half. The pacing didn't quite work for me. It was quite so. In the second half, he gets into it a lot more. Mm. The other other actors here are Laura Carmichael from uh, Downton Abbey, who has virtually nothing to work with here. I yeah. think it's safe to say, and uh, Sargon Yelder, who has possibly even less to, <laughs> to, to, to do. Yeah, like I mean, they, they do as well as they can. They My God, they they, they claw something out of this. Yeah. They really. But that, yeah. but that couple is. I mean, that well, sorry, that pair. They're not a couple. They are. They are seriously sort of. They're basically just foils for what. You, what I think in the original sort of stagings would usually be the fun couple, yes. which is Elliot and Amanda. Yeah, they're the straight man and woman. Well, aren't yeah, they, exactly. It is that yeah. sort of thirties screwbally type of oh, those are the boring normals, yeah. and these yeah. are the fun, crazy. They fight, but they're great. They're sexy and fun. Whereas yeah. in this production, they weren't any of those things. No, There's also already. a rather mordant um, string duo on stage. Oh, that was also had a fight. That was quite funny. That was okay. Funny. All right, we'll, we'll give them that one then. But it is, it is unremittingly bleak actually when you look yeah. back on it you're like oh god yeah. like I just I, A I don't want to spend any time with any of these people ever again no. but also can I ever spend any time with anyone ever again <laughs> yeah. from never having seen it before I don't really want to see it again but if you've seen it before is this a sort of bold interesting take on it I, I'm trying to work out what it's a bold take on it but not an interesting right. one <laughs> it's always what I say I, I mean fair. I think the, the weird thing is I, I remember talking to Lucy Bailey the director uh, one time who classes Coward as a radical and if you think about the time he was writing yeah. the sort of relationships he was describing the lightness with which he discussed divorce and mm. uh, sort of polyamorous relationships if we think of design for living and things like yeah, that he is quite a radical uh, guy and he is worthy of reappraisal mm. I just don't think 
this one works. I mean, weirdly, this play is almost 100 years old now. It yes. premiered oh. in 19, 1930s, and I mm. suppose it's just one of those things that he's he's seemed such a constant presence. Mm. that um, oh boy, does it feel it. It really does feel it. It's creaky. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, Nick, we'll never make you see another one. <laughs> well, I love that have... sort of Woodhousey. I was expecting a Wildy and Woodhousey. I was thinking, mm. this is going to be a great fun night at the theatre. Yes, <laughs> oh, yeah. That's it for this week's episode of the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. You can find all our reviews and news online at standard.co.uk and all our other episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, if you haven't yet done so, hit follow or subscribe so you'll always be reminded when a new episode drops in. See you next Sunday.